Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents, a show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Diana Merriam. She's the host of the Optimal Finance Podcast, and she's the creator of the Economy Conference. We talk everything about personal finance, the FIRE movement, investing, and how to live your life a little freer with financial independence. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Diana, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I thought we could just start off with a brief introduction, what you're interested in, and what brought you into the finance world. So I'm Diana. I produce an event called the Economy Conference, and this is like a party about money. It is also been described as the TED Talks of the FIRE movement. And so that is something that I created a number of years ago. We're actually moving into our third event in 2023. And then I'm also the host of the Optimal Finance Daily podcast, which is a pretty big show. It's a narration style podcast. And so I'm reading content from personal finance bloggers every single day of the week and offering a tiny bit of commentary on it. So it's 10 minutes or less every single day. I like to say that these bloggers wrote these amazing songs and I get to perform the covers. So it's lots of fun. Yeah. And my interest in personal finance really started probably when I was around 28. I was living in New York City. I was in 30 grand of debt for absolutely no reason, just living beyond my means. I knew nothing about money. And I discovered the Mr. Money Mustache blog. And I like to describe finding that blog as this like refreshing punch in the face because it really helped me realize that I did not have an income problem. I had a money management problem. And that was like totally new news to me. And so that kind of set me on this journey of doing this complete 180 where I got out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months. And then I started saving and investing about 60% of my income, which opened up a world of opportunity for me. I was able to take a two-month sabbatical to go walk the Camino in Spain, which for those that might not be familiar, it's a 500-mile trek across Spain. It took me 38 days to do it. And being in the financial position to take an unpaid sabbatical was something I never even thought would be possible for me. I negotiated a remote working arrangement with my employer at the time. This was back in 2017. So way before COVID times when it was the norm to work remote, but I was able to move from New York city to Cincinnati, which enabled me to buy a house. And all of that financial bandwidth also allowed me to self-fund my own business without taking on any debt or investors, which to me was, I think a huge benefit to saving and investing such a large percentage of your income is that you can take some some risks and entrepreneurial risks. And then I quit my job about a year and a half ago. And so now I'm pursuing what I like to call fun employment. And here I am talking to you. I think that's awesome. It's amazing the amount of opportunities that open up once you manage your money correctly and aren't, you know, forced to work overtime or whatever with your days off. And of course, as you say, the unpaid sabbatical is also a huge advantage if you can manage that. One of the main things that wanted me to get you on the show was the FIRE movement. So that's, yeah. you know, financial independence, retire early. But 
as we discussed right before the show, it's not necessarily retirement. I wonder if you could just Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the movement, what that looks like. Yeah, sure. So the fire movement to me is this lifestyle movement of people pursuing financial freedom. And there's no like organizing, you know, person, there's no head of the fire movement. There's no rules to the fire movement. It's kind of this collection of people that are looking at working and saving and investing a little bit differently. And so the way that I see it is we're really not doing anything different than anyone that was, wants to retire at any age. Like if you want to retire at 65, you know, or a traditional retirement age, you're going to need to save probably around 10% of your income. You want to, you know, fully fund your 401k and your tax advantaged accounts. You want to invest in low fee total market index funds or real estate or something like that, right? We're doing all of the same things that everyone should be doing to ever retire. We're just doing it at a much more aggressive rate. So most financial planners are going to tell you to save between 10 to 20% of your income, depending on your age. I was saving 60% of my income. So even though I was investing in the same kind of things and not doing any kind of get rich quick schemes or anything like that, it's just that the the fact that my savings rate was so much higher, it's just going to get me there quicker. And so I think there's a huge amount of variety within the FIRE movement. The only thing we actually all agree on is to spend less than you earn and invest the gap. And really focusing on that gap and increasing the gap between your income and your expenses. But as far as like what your savings rate should be, what you should invest in, you know, how fast you should get there, right? So there are people that are racing towards financial independence and they want to quit within five to 10 years. And then there are other people that are taking more of what we call a slow fi or coast fi approach, where you're basically front loading your retirement savings and then kind of just coasting until traditional retirement age by just making enough money to meet your expenses. That's kind of the style that I've evolved to in that I reached coast fi status, which means that I saved enough in my retirement vehicles that if I didn't contribute one more dollar, it would grow through the power of compound interest to what I need a traditional retirement age. So I basically just front loaded my retirement savings. And then when quitting my job, I took a huge drop in income, but because my expenses are so low, I just need to work a little bit to cover those expenses. And I'm able to do that on about one day of work a week. Wow. I think that's amazing. That's a great overview of sort of what it looks like. And I like that coast fire term. It's really, I think kind of a cool name for it. Um, Something that I've seen before, I don't know if you follow Brian Feroli on Twitter, but he had a nice graph where, you know, it showed that in the beginning, your savings mattered the most, but near Mm -hmm. the end, your investment returns matter the most. And I think that's important to note with you guys, obviously, because you're saving so much early and uh, the way that it compounds and grows is so important to enable you to retire at an earlier age. So one question I sort of have just in your circles, what are people saying about inflation? Are they, are they concerned because as you know, cost of living goes up, you're going to need more money. And mm-hmm. of course, at the moment, it's sort of running wild. So how are people in the fire circle dealing with that at sure. the moment? Yeah. So if you think about the number that we're, most of us are pursuing is 25 times our annual expenses, right? And so that translates to something called the 4% rule, which 
is really a model for traditional retirement, right? So it's it's saying if you withdraw 4% from your portfolio over the course of 30 years is kind of what the model is based off of, you will 96% of the time have enough money for the rest of your life, right? And so the 4% rule is something that a lot of us use as a guideline, especially when you're you know, at the point where you're going to retire early, maybe you're not anticipating any additional income and you're going to work on a drawdown strategy of your portfolio. But the inflation is baked into that guideline. And so the rule is 4% plus inflation. Now, of course, extended high inflation is a significant risk, especially when you like initially retire and in those early years. Mind you, the 4% rule was developed from the Trinity study, which considered high inflation like in the 80s when it was at like I mean, double digit percentages, right? And so inflation is kind of baked into the numbers. And just like we see when we make assumptions around investment returns, and maybe we're using seven or 8%, you know, investment returns, that's kind of an average over a long period of time. So same thing with inflation. When we make assumptions, we're making assumptions on an average over a long period of time. And so you know, some years it's going to be a lot higher, some years it's going to be a lot lower than those assumptions. And so it balances out over the long run. I also think that it's important to keep in mind the personal rate of inflation that you have doesn't necessarily match the overall rate of inflation of a typical consumer. And so I give an example, you know, I'm, I'm seeing inflation most personally at the grocery store for myself, right? And so before all of this high inflation, I only ever bought meat that was less than $3 a pound. That was just my policy. I go and look at what meat is on sale and I stock up on anything that's less than $3 a pound. I still follow that rule today. Now today, it's more likely that I'm going to find pork for less than $3 a pound and less likely to find beef. But just the other day, I bought you know, three big tubes of beef that was let, that was on sale for less than $3 a pound. So I think it's important to recognize that when prices are going up, especially due to inflation, there's still options within that. And so I think if you have flexibility and you can be smart about your options, you can navigate inflation a little bit more skillfully. I'll give you another example. I had recently taken a trip with a friend and it's, a, you know, it was a cross state trip where I would normally fly but flights were like $500 each. And so we opted to take a nine hour drive and it was actually really fun and like kind of preferable to my recent flying experiences. But we ended up paying around $200 in gas, even with the gas prices where they are. I also think another thing I'll say about inflation is that the larger your gap between your income and your expenses, the less I feel inflation be like the inflation becomes more of an inconvenience than a catastrophe, right? So if I've got a 60% savings rate and during this period of high inflation, oh no, it goes down to 50%, boo-hoo. You know, like, like that's not, this is why we create financial bandwidth for ourselves to be able to navigate these kind of financial hurdles. So I know I personally have set myself up that I have so much 
financial bandwidth that yes, prices are going up, but I'm, I just don't feel as inflation as much as someone that is like living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I think that's a great example and a great way to go about it. It's just, you know, maybe instead of the beef, you buy the pork and maybe you like a recipe that's made out of pork that you may not have tried before. And as you say, instead of flying, you drive and you find that maybe you like road trips. It's just going to be based on your budget. And for me, one thing that I thought I'd ask you about is that I struggle with personally when it comes to the psychology of money is that Mm. I tend to enjoy certain aspects of life, like traveling, like you say, Mm -hmm. or, you know, nicer vehicles and lifestyle creep can build up very quickly. Mm -hmm. And especially I've noticed since COVID, at least up here in Canada, we had two years of, you know, kind of on and off lockdowns and fear Mm -hmm. of going anywhere. So it's become a lot more difficult to keep those costs in check. I wonder what you do to just sort of avoid those kind of, you know, thoughts of buying something expensive or, Mm -hmm. you know, for me personally, what I do is I buy a car that I know I'm going to like for a long time. And then I just, then I just keep it till it's paid off and continue driving it. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. the way that I go about that rather than, you know, a couple ones that you kind of like, and then you're trading them in. So for me, that works, but I don't know, are there any tips that you have for people who may find their lifestyle creep just kind of getting ahead of them? Well, I'll tell you that before I discovered the fire movement, I was never like super materialistic, but I definitely paid a lot of money for convenience. And like my Achilles heel was like going out and drinking all the time and like going out to dinner. And like, I had my twenties in New York city. Thank you very much. So I think that it is challenging and lifestyle creep is something that we need to be aware of because we have been conditioned since birth to be consumers, right? And so we live in a society that's pretty materialistic and it's almost ingrained in us to desire luxury. And I think for me, I wasn't able to like get out of debt and really change my spending habits until I changed my desires. And I realized that the root of my happiness isn't in stuff. It's a very fleeting, like if you've ever heard of hedonic adaptation, where you buy the fancy, beautiful car and three months later, it's just part of your normal. You're not getting that same thrill as you did when you first bought it. Over time, that just really diminishes, right? And so I think I have to continually remind myself to not find my happiness in stuff and find my happiness instead with full autonomy over my time, the ability to create what I want to see in the world and the ability to spend a lot of time with people that I love. I feel like I've replaced a lot of consumerist tendencies with a pursuit of personal development, you know, rather than going out, spending a ton of money drinking, you know, I'm staying home more. I'm reading books. I'm journaling. I'm working out a lot more. I'm going on long hikes. And even when it comes to, you know, looking at when you're spending your money on that stuff, what is the underlying need? For me, it was a need for social connection. Well, I can do that in a much more economical way right? I can have dinner parties and invite people over to my house for a lot cheaper. Let them bring the booze. I'll cook the food. And we all have, you know, a fun evening without that expense or even like clothing. 
when I was getting out of debt, out of that 30 grand in 11 months, I did not buy any new clothing. I started attending and hosting clothing exchanges where a group of ladies would clean out their closets. We'd go to someone's apartment and we'd have a fun afternoon of like mimosas and music and trying on each other's clothes. And I would walk away from those clothing exchanges with like a full closet of better, more fashionable clothes than I would have bought on my own. A lot of people think when you are reducing your expenses and you know, people probably look at me that I'm living this like miserly life. You know what I mean? That I'm cheap or that whatever, that I don't put a lot of value into material things. But I find that the more you question consumerism and the more you desire to create something versus consume something, you find other ways to scratch that itch and you figure out what is the underlying need, whether it's social, whether it's you know, a need to impress other people. And you can start to, you know, investigate how to scratch that itch in more economical ways. Yeah, for sure. I think a little bit of self-reflection is always good. And maybe you'll find that some of your greater expenses, like you say, going out to the bar or whatever, isn't something that you necessarily need to do that activity, like socializing, like you say. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. And just going on that socializing part, I thought we could talk a little bit about your conferences, the economy mm-hmm. conference. Yeah. What kind of things do you guys talk about there? Yeah. So economy is really about community and inspiration. For me personally, like I'm an extrovert. I love people and I don't see what's the point of reaching financial independence and retiring early if you have no one to hang out with. <laughs> like That does not sound fun to me. And so I see economy as this opportunity to find other weirdos that are pursuing fire. I mean, it's a pretty unconventional way to go. And I find this community to be some of the smartest, most creative, most generous people I've ever met. Like my path to FI has improved exponentially just from tapping into the community. Now there's a huge online community You know, there are forums, there are Facebook groups, like there are so many ways to interact online, but I don't know if you've been in like any of those kind of Facebook groups or forums, like when people are hiding behind a screen, they're just like, give themselves permission to be pretty shitty. Right. And I, I find, I don't like interacting with people through a screen. It's just not my style. Like I like this, I like talking. Right. And so I really prioritize in-person connection. I feel that all of this digital, I mean, it's great that we have access to the internet and it obviously is very helpful in many ways and makes our lives very efficient. But I think that sometimes efficiency does not equal what's best for your well-being. And I think in-person communication with other people that are like-minded can be life-changing. So I'll give you an example. My best friend today is someone I met at Economy. She came to the first economy conference. She lives in Cincinnati, which is where the economy conference is held. And she reached out to me and asked me to like have a coffee. And I was like, great. And now she, so she also like quit her job. She's on a very similar path to me. 
We're around similar ages. We live in the same city. She's the only other person that I know that has full autonomy over her time. So that means that we get to go long distance hiking every weekend. We get to, you know, float down the Miami river on a lazy Tuesday afternoon while everybody else is like cranking away at their nine to five, you know, and she has become this huge part of my life that I've really benefited from her friendship. So that's, Number one, when it comes to like why I created economy and what you can get out of it, it's the community and it's the people that you meet there. We also have incredible main stage speakers. So it's produced just like TED Talks. You can go onto my YouTube channel and you can see all of the amazing speeches from the last two events. And these speakers are talking about the pursuit of financial independence from a lot of different angles. So some of them are personal stories, like the most popular speech was from the first event. And it was from a woman named Jackie Cummings-Koski, who she discovered the fire movement at like 38 when she was going through a divorce. She's a single black woman and she's also a mother. She's making less than six figures and she retires at 49. And she did this incredible speech where she opened up the book. She shows you all of her numbers. She shows you exactly how she did it. It was incredibly inspiring, especially because a lot of people have this perception that you have to be making six figures in order to reach five in 10 years. And she, you know, proves it wrong. There are also really tactical speeches on things like, what do you do about student loan debt? We had an expert on student loan debt who was incredible. There's another one on the YouTube channel about medical billing fraud, which you don't have to worry about this in Canada, but healthcare in the U.S. Oh, don't even get me started on this, but it is the number one reason why financially independent people don't quit their jobs because it's such a scary thing with healthcare and it's incredibly difficult to plan for it. And so a lot of people worry about health insurance, but we had a speaker talking about medical billing fraud, which is an $80 billion problem in the U.S. that no one is talking about. And so she's a medical billing fraud investigator, and she teaches you how to like analyze your medical bills and advocate for yourself. So we have really tactical plus inspirational speakers on the main stage. But here's the thing. If you are only interested in that part, I will give that to you for free. I put all of those speeches up on YouTube for free. Like you can just feel free to watch them all. You pay for a ticket and you come to the event because you want to get access to the community and you want to participate in the community. And so that's what the event's all about. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And it's interesting that you mentioned you started the conference because you wanted to sort of engage with other like-minded people. And that's sort of why I've started my podcast. It's, I mean, it's not a conference, but I get to talk to people like you and whoever who are interested in finance and progressing their financial independence. And it's also interesting that you mention the in-person aspect mm -hmm. of it because, it, and this sort of plays into fire as well, because what I've been hearing a lot about is sort of working from home and, and how mm -hmm. much people like that. But then businesses are pushing back and they're saying, no, we want you to come to work because that's where the real creativity comes mm -hmm. from is when people are together. So there's yeah. sort of like a, a give and take with working from home. And also when you are in person with somebody, I, I do agree with the businesses in saying that I believe more creativity comes out of gatherings yeah. of face-to-face of -face meetings. 
I think um, the difference is though, in a work environment, most of the time you don't get to choose the people that you work with, very true. right? So when it's friends and when it's like-minded people within the fire community, you know, that just has like a level of intentionality of who you're surrounding yourself with that you don't necessarily get from a work environment. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that completely. Yeah. I think it's just interesting that how you mentioned that, that you sort of, you know, when you work together, let's just say it's a perfect team yeah. at, at their job and they all get along and they all have the same motives. Then it, I think it works best that way. I noticed you mentioned that you work from home as well, which mm-hmm. is, I think, great. And it's your own business, correct? How, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about jumping into the world of entrepreneurship and, and what that was like. Yeah. Oh, I'm still figuring it out. It's a work in progress. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I got this idea for the economy conference in 2018 and I started working on it in the summer of 2018 and ended up producing my first event in March of 2020. And, you know, I, I worked largely on it by myself. You know, most people that produce large scale events, you know, with this high production value that I'm going for have a team of like 10 people. So it definitely has been very challenging for me to work on this on my own. I definitely have incredible people that come out of the woodwork to help me. And, you know, I, I continue to look for those people to be in the trenches with me and and continue to evolve the event. But what I realized in starting a business is that the skills that make me a really good employee made me a terrible entrepreneur. And I still am working on getting over that because when I think about my corporate career, you know, I worked for the largest licensing agency in the world in this industry of brand extension. I was surrounded by people at the top of their game. And there were so many checks and balances before something went out the door. Like, you know, you had so many people that had to put their seal of approval on it. We had really like multi-billion you know, level clients. So there was a level of like caliber that I was used to producing at. And starting something myself where I didn't have those resources of a team, I didn't have the checks and balances, I had to make every decision by myself. And I had to like, let it be messy and just try stuff. And I was not used to that. So that was definitely very challenging. Also my first year. So for my first event, I took a 40 grand loss. And as someone that, you know, was saving and investing 60% of my income, that was a huge, like, hurdle to get over and to like continue moving forward, even though like the writing was on the wall that I was going to take this huge loss. And, you know, I could call it a loss or I could call it an investment in the business. And it is an investment in the business. I will ultimately make that back over the long term. But that was an adjustment to, you know, create something and take on all of the risk. Now, I think that moving into either self-employment or entrepreneurship, when you're on this FI path, you have a lot more, I think, financial bandwidth to take those risks, right? So if I wasn't in the financial position that I'm in, I could very easily have said, okay, I had this great idea for a business. I tried. The ticket sales don't cover my costs. Clearly, there's not enough demand for this product that I'm putting out there. And so I just need to cancel it. And you know, take my losses and and that's that. Like I could have went that route, 
But because that 40 grand is basically what I would have invested in my after-tax brokerage after fully funding all of my retirement vehicles, that 40 grand is what I would have put in my after-tax brokerage for my path to FI. And so instead of putting it there, I just put it into my own business. And I didn't see any change in my lifestyle aside from investing less that year, right? And so that gave me like a lot of comfort in you know, obviously I can't take a finance, uh, a 40 grand loss every year. I have to move the business to sustainability, but being able to like take that big of a loss and still be okay financially, I think allowed me to like, want to take more risks. Yeah. I think that's great. I agree with you there for sure. If you have the financial capability to take a loss like that, then you're going to be more likely to stick with the plan instead of cutting your losses early. And I think you almost need that kind of grit in the business world. I, like I haven't started my own business, but I would like to someday. And, you know, I'm sort of in the middle of being able to, cause uh, you know, I work a regular nine to five kind of deal and it's kind of tough to take that plunge into the business mm -hmm. world. One thing too, I think that you have, to your advantage is the amount of time that you can put into a business. Cause for me, it, you know, it gets difficult when you're working and dealing with other, you know, personal things to throw in a 60 hours of working on your business as well. But I also understand in my circles with different things that I've been reading, the best way to create wealth is to start a business and be successful in it. And yeah. I, I think a lot of people fall into the trap of investing is going to get you rich fast. And I'm not saying that a business will either, but I think a lot of people sort of miss that side of the mm -hmm. financial world where creating a business can be very profitable if you do it well. I wonder if you guys talk about that in, in your world as well. Yeah, I think that in terms of investment, it depends on what kind of business you start. Like my business won't be profitable until five years after I started working on it. And I did start working on it when I worked full-time. I didn't, you know, put in 60 hour weeks. Obviously it took me longer because I was doing it little by little on the side. But I think if you're going to start something that you're building from scratch like that, you know, you're going to need a long runway and have some patience and maybe ultimately it could be lucrative, but it's still a lot of unknown. It's still a huge risk, right? I mean, most, there's some crazy stat that like 90% of entrepreneurs fail. And so for me, as much as I am taking a risk on creating a business, I also like didn't quit my job. I didn't leave my six figure salary until I had some assurances that this was going somewhere. You know, I'm not one of those people that are like, yeah, go follow your dreams and drain your 401k to like go start something. Like, I, I think you need to have proof, proof of concept. I need you, I think you need to have some like reasonable assumptions that and assurances that, you know, you're not putting your backing yourself into a corner. But I don't think entrepreneurship is the fastest way to grow wealth. I think real estate is honestly. I mean, everyone that I've known that has reached financial independence really quickly has done it through real estate investing. I mean, it's essentially like a second job, right? It's not as passive as just low fee total market index fund investing. It's definitely a lot more work, but that to me is like the speedy path is real estate. If you're willing to do that. I definitely think like just regular investing in the stock market is like the slowest path. However, if your income is really high and your expenses are really low and you're, you know, 
putting in those high percentages of your income, then yeah, you can fast path it in five to 10 years, really. Yeah, for sure. And especially once you start to build a nice nest egg, as they say, and your money starts working harder, the bigger that pile gets and it just snowballs when you talk about investing. Like if you're getting you know, 4% dividend from a bank doesn't seem like much when you've got $1,000, $10,000, but you start getting a hundred thousand dollars in there, then, you know, that's some serious money you're going to get back. Definitely. And it's, it just keeps growing and reinvesting. And then that's when the stock market's your friend, obviously just with real estate and, you know, starting a business and investing. I'm a firm believer that everybody's going to be really good at something. They just need to know what it is. So me personally, I love the idea of real estate, but I'm not necessarily the handiest guy around. So I'm not going to be able to go in and fix different things, whereas other people are. And I find that they're the ones that do really well because they can just go in and fix stuff and they're great landlords. And then, you know, some people, you know, me personally, I'm kind of like a patient person. So I prefer the stock market, Mm -hmm. but I would like to, you know, start business, just need to figure out what it is. I wonder if there are some characteristics that you've noticed for people and how they sort of leverage those to, to find their, their best path. Yeah. I think it really is like following your interest, right. And like recognizing how much risk you can tolerate. So for me, like, the economy conference is incredibly risky. I mean, I could have never anticipated that we would have a global pandemic when I'm launching an events-based business, you know? So like, I never saw that coming. And, you know, I've, I've definitely had to navigate that. And so for me, like I put all of my tolerance for risk into creating that business. So to me, I, I don't feel like I have any tolerance left to take on something like real estate. To me, real estate requires more work and is slightly more risky than just stock market investing. Right. And so I think people that have like a friend of mine who she was a school teacher, her husband worked in IT. They had like 60 grand in cash and they knew that like, they're never going to make the high figures that would allow them to like reach financial independence through index fund investing in any reasonable amount of time. And so they took that 60 grand and they started investing in properties and you know, they would do the whole strategy where you invest in the property, you pull out equity, you use that to invest in another property. So they're really like highly like using leverage, but in like a, a, you know, smart way, there's definitely dumb ways to do that where you put, you set yourself up for a lot more risk, but, and, and a lot of those properties, they self-manage some of them, they, they have a management company that they work with, but they've got like 40 doors now. And they were able to build that in about five years but they had like a real interest in real estate that I don't think that I have as much of, like I'm curious about it, but they also had this need for speed because she had an autoimmune disease and she wasn't sure like how long she was going to be able to spend with her kids. And so she wanted to like be able to quit her job as quickly as possible because she didn't know how much life she had left. It ended up working out okay. And she's still with us, but I think it really depends on your circumstances and your interest level. And also your skills. Like, I just think we all have a unique collection of skills, circumstances, and preferences that will drive us to take different paths. Like sometimes I look at people that are doing this real estate thing and doing it really successfully. 
And I'm like, oh man, like, I think I want to do that. And then I sit down with them and I talk about the realities of actually building a real estate portfolio. And I'm like, no, I don't have like the emotional capacity at this time because all that they put into their portfolio, like I'm putting that into economy. I don't have any more left to build a real estate portfolio right now. And I'm letting that be okay because I'm on my own unique path. And so are they. Yeah, absolutely. I have to fully agree with that. Everybody does their own thing. As long as you're doing something and you have a goal in mind, then yeah, go for it. But reasonably, as you say, don't just jump without a plan, right? I mean, I think it's really important, you know, when you're digesting all this financial content and you're hearing people's stories, like I get bugged by like, hey, I did it. You can do it too. Just copy what I did. I don't think you should copy anyone's path. Like I don't share my story because I think other people should try to do what I did. I share it as inspiration to like, Hey, I charted a unique path for myself. There is a unique path for you too, and like garner your own interest in figuring that out. Don't just copy what I'm doing because again, I have a unique circumstances that allow me to do what I do, but my path looks different than the other people that inspired me. And I was able to take the pieces of what I learned from them and create something fairly unique. And so I just don't think you should try to copy anyone's story because it robs you of like the pleasure of writing your own. Absolutely. I agree. I think in investing too, it's the same. I don't think that we should try to copy anybody's portfolio because, you know, there's a risk tolerance involved. There's you know, what are you going to be interested in watching? How often are you going to look at your portfolio? And everybody's unique and they should have unique investments in my opinion. And, you know, there's, there's certain basic ways that is, you know, the best for people who don't look or whatever, like you say, dollar cost average in the indexes or whatever, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily for everybody because some, some people may want to just use the mutual funds and some people may just want to go into individual stocks because they feel like that's where they're going to keep their attention. So just with that being said, I think this has been great. I want to give you an opportunity to promote some of your conferences and your podcasts and your YouTube channel and whatever you want to say for anybody who's looking to find some more content or perhaps looking to join in on the conference. Absolutely. So the next event is March 17th through 19th of 2023. And tickets are on sale now. We're at about 40% capacity. So the tickets are going pretty fast and we're like eight months in advance. So if you're interested, I would definitely check that out sooner than later. And it's happening, you know, at the University of Cincinnati. And then you can also listen to me every single day on the Optimal Finance Daily podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. I'll have to check out some of those podcasts and your YouTube channel because it sounds like there's some good speeches there. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. 